today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Talk about what's been happening in the United States of America. A lot were uh, watching uh, the second impeachment trial of uh, former President Donald Trump. And, of course, uh, the uh, Republicans, although uh, the Democrats have a, a majority in the Senate of like 51%, takes two-thirds of the Senate to uh, vote to impeach. And, of course, uh, I think there's maybe a half a dozen, seven perhaps uh, Republican senators that did vote to impeach. The rest uh, will go down as supporting the president and uh, and moving through. If he had been, in fact, convicted, uh, they could have also uh, made it so he doesn't run again, which uh, was a lot of the reason, I guess, the Democrats were moving forward with this, as well as making sure that everything uh, has been documented. But now it is over, and uh, he was uh, acquitted of his second impeachment uh, trial. Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration, Ryerson University. He is with us now. Wayne, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, yeah, a bit, a uh, little tired from uh, shoveling and blowing snow today. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Uh, so, your thoughts on what happened over the weekend? I guess no surprises in the sense that um, no one really expected the uh, Republicans in the Senate to vote to impeach the president, despite a, uh, a compelling uh, video presentation from the Liberals. Are you surprised? What are your thoughts about where we are today? Well, certainly, it isn't a surprise that Republicans uh, did not. Uh, uh, contribute votes to make it a 67-vote uh, cast in favor of impeachment. Uh, they, there was never that was never going to be the case. Uh, it's a combination of factors. One, they hope to, almost in a sense, convince the American public that you know, no show here, move on, and so that people will they hopefully, for in, in their mind, forget uh, all that took place. And on on the other hand, they they are also still very much enthralled to Trump supporters, at least in a, in a number of states, including some states where there are Senate elections in just over a year's time. So is this good or bad for the Republican Party moving forward? Like you said, is this uh, let's move on and go ahead, or uh, should they have put the final nail in Donald Trump's coffin here? Oh, I, I, I think certainly... Uh, they should have put a stake in his heart for their own long-term well-being. They didn't. And going forward now, you'll have a, 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 a kind of low-grade, visible one minute, invisible the next minute, civil war within the Republican Party. Uh, as you know, President, uh, former President Trump has raised a considerable amount of money that he can use to help uh, support primary challengers to some of the Republican senators that he doesn't get along with. And uh, McConnell, the, the Republican uh, Senate leader, has made it clear that uh, he's going to get involved as well in the primaries. Uh, as he put it, he says, we can't keep nominating candidates who can't win a general election. And he's referring there to the kind of extremist candidates that, you know, they uh, went forward with Mr. Trump's blessing. So you're going to see this, you know, money versus money supporting different candidates, uh, so that will will go on, but mostly out of the public's eye, and the truth is, most Americans could care less. Is that Donald Trump's role now, the banker, supporting candidates he likes and, you know, uh, going after the ones that uh, didn't support him? Is, is that what his role is now? Well, his, his role is going to be to dispense other people's money. Remember, this, none of this is his. 
uh, it's good mm-hmm. to dispense other people's money to either put, help put, nominate and put in place, get elected, people who, who parrot his line, or, in, as in the case in, in some instances, use the money to go after Republicans who he feels weren't loyal enough to him. Um, what, you know, we've certainly known that Donald Trump succeeds by dividing. I mean, I've read report, I haven't read any of his books, but I've read, I've read information on his books and even his, uh, his own executives. He would turn them against each other just to try to get the boust, you know, only the strongest one survives, the rest get eaten, so to speak. Uh, he came in with a, a, a slim majority, um, you know, had the House, uh, lost that. Uh, lost the election, lost the Senate, and now and has divided everybody, and is now dividing the Republican Party. So how can you keep cutting things in half and yet winning? Well, I I really don't think they can. Uh, I I think uh, following Trump, those elements in the party following Trump are are basically le- le- heading right into a rabbit hole. Uh, it, it's a dead end. Uh, they they uh, will not be able to command a a majority in a general election. Uh, now we noticed, you know, in the last few weeks, uh, virtually tens of thousands of Republican voters have resigned their memberships. Uh, at the latest polling shows something like fifty uh, percent of the American public, when asked, indicate that they're independents. Uh, the Republicans are down in, in the very low 20s. So you can, you can massage and, and kiss that 21, 22% as, as much as you like, but it remains 21, 22%. Uh, he has to, you have to attract independence in, in the American uh, political arena. And uh, independence, uh, he lost big time to independents among independent voters in the most recent election. And the polling after the January 6th uh, riots and insurrection indicate that he's fallen even further out of favor with independent voters. So why is the Republican Party so scared of him then? Um, you know, if, if that's the case and, and Republicans are, are walking away from the party, why are they putting all of their eggs in the basket of the lowest common denominator? I think part of it has to do with the fact that what Trump's four years as, as leader of the party managed to do was essentially bankrupted in policy terms. Uh, you know, you can say move away from Trump, but move away to what? What actually do mm-hmm. you stand for? And they're having a hard time sorting out what they stand for. And some of the answers that come from some members aren't promising. It, it, it's hard to imagine. Uh, think about it in our own context in Canada here, that you can mouth, continuously mouth anti-immigrant policies in a country built on immigration that you can continue to mouth uh, racially charged uh, uh, commentaries in a country where people of color are nearing 40%. Mm. It, it, these are, so they have to come to terms with their own, uh, their own uh, points of view in and, and terms of constructing a way forward. 
But you have to think that Republicans are sitting around and thinking uh, whether this is the new vision or that the old vision is better. Um, they've still got a divided party, and you don't win elections with divided parties. You sit in a holding pattern election after an election. So can you see the Republican Party, if they're going in the direction that they're continuing to go in here, being even a contender in the next 10 years, in the next decade? Well, they, they that, like always- Donald Trump, Donald Trump, in his ambition to 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 elevate this party, has destroyed it, has divided it, has made it less powerful now. He certainly has, but keep in mind, uh, the American system, very different from our own. Republicans still control 27 states. And states in the American system are, are the body responsible for setting the boundaries for, for the different writings in the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. or, or districts, if, as they call them. And they have been gerrymandering, which is rigging, those districts day and night uh they have been in fact several of the their attempts were so so over the top that the u.s supreme court intervened and forced the legislatures to go back and redraw the districts so that's ongoing and what that enables them to do they will remain competitive in the house in spite of the fact that they will in in aggregate terms lose house elections by huge numbers they will still hold seats they will still be very competitive for a majority in the House. Also keep in mind, in the American system, rural agrarian states, small population states, are almost grotesquely overrepresented in the Senate, the upper body. California has a greater population than the 22 smallest American states. And in those 22 smallest American states, the overwhelming majority of the senators are Republicans. What do the Democrats get? Two senators in California. So you've got this imbalance. It's a structural imbalance in their system, mm. which really enables them to be competitive when, as you put it, by all other logic, they shouldn't be competitive. Uh, how will history judge what is happening in the Republican Party now, especially with those who voted not to impeach uh, Trump? Will that matter? Oh, the judgment's going to be harsh and, and unyielding. And that's what, and that reputation, that damaged brand, is what is the challenge that Republicans will be facing for the next 10 years, no? Certainly, it, it, it's the challenge they're, they're going to face. And as I, uh, you know, I, you know to, to keep in mind that this struggle within the party can, can go one of, you know, one of three ways. It can lead to the traditional Republican base reasserting control and pushing out or the Trump types leaving on their own accord and forming a third party. The other alternative is that the, and the more likely one, I think, traditional Republicans will not be able to get back control. They, they, they just don't have the horses. And they will perhaps form an alternative, an, an alternate conservative political party. Uh, apparently, in the last week or two, uh, there have been discussions of that sort going on about saying, listen, we can't take back the party from Trump. His people are, are just too dominant. We should look at going our own way and forming a center-right conservative party uh, truer towards traditional Republican uh, goals and, and, and preferences. So can you see it becoming a three-party system in the U.S.? I mean, is that realistic? 
I, I, I can certainly see that for a very short period. Uh, their system is, the way it's built, it really hammers yeah. uh, uh, parties that have broad appeal that isn't concentrated. Uh, you know, you can win millions of votes and get nothing in their system. And, and, and so that's why third parties tend to peter out pretty quick. Uh, but I think that's what's likely to happen. The, the never-Trump people within the Republican Party, I think, really are never-Trump. And they're either going to have to take back their party or they're going to go on their own. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the Lindsey Grahams of the world, who have literally been speaking out of both sides of their mouth over the course of, of this fiasco? And then I think yeah, the other day used the term Donald Trump plus. That's what's going to win the next election. What is he talking about? Well, I, you know, I, I think he has, he hopes to be the nominee in 24. He hopes to have the blessing of Trump. Uh, and, and that's, uh, command the lo- loyalty or earn get the loyalty of, of the Trump base within the party. Uh, so it's it's just ambition. Uh, it, it's it's never been a secret. Uh, it's completely unscrupulous, immoral. Uh, there's no moral center of gravity uh, either in Senator Graham or in other of his like-minded colleagues who are also aspiring to be the 224 candidate like Cruz, uh, Ted Cruz from Texas, and Josh Hawley from, from Missouri. Uh, these are fellow travelers of the Trump conspiracy, and uh, they have aided and abetted uh, Trump during the entirety of his time in office and subsequent to that. So what is Donald Trump doing now? Uh, apparently he was celebrating at Mar-a-Lago uh, over the weekend, and, and the lawyers were saying, we're going to Disney World um, after, this, uh, after the impeachment um, was basically thrown out. Uh, you know, he doesn't have the stage, doesn't have the platform, mm-hmm. doesn't have the platforms anymore. What is he doing? How is he... Uh, how is he? How is he influencing without that sort of platform, without that stage? And 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 does he does he have that much power without that stage? I think his influence is is ebbing, and will continue to ebb. Uh, he spends, I, I suspect, most of his time imagining that uh, all this happened to him was unfair, unjust, and that he's some kind of martyr. Uh, so he has this delusional sense of what transpired in the last three months that he will cling to and most times he spends a good part of his day calling people who he hopes and expects will reinforce the delusions uh, he isn't calling critics to give him a detached view of things has no interest in that he only talks to people who are going to tell him what he wants to hear so he will do that and if yes he has resources uh, but he's going to find, one, he's, his influence is ebbing. Two, he's going to find that um, items are going to get thrown at him coming out of the legal realm that are going to begin to consume more of his time and, and, and attention. Uh, he, that was my next question, Wayne. What about his other, everybody was saying once he gets out of office, he's got a whole swack of legal problems on his plate, which are, are quite expensive. I mean, how much of a distraction is that going to be for him? 
Oh, I, I mean, we don't know until charges are actually filed, but I, I think one could be reasonably uh, certain that, in fact, charges will be filed probably by at least two jurisdictions, if not, if not more. And they will they'll be serious charges, criminal charges, uh, that uh, he, will be, he will have to defend himself against. And there are not going to be simple criminal charges of, you know, some kind of assault. They're likely going to involve, uh, involve financial crimes of one sort, tax pro- crimes of another sort. Uh, and so he's going to find a lot of his attention and more and more of his resources are going to be devoted trying to uh, protect uh, his, uh, his, his economic interests. Uh, at best here, we're looking at a divided Republican Party. And as I mentioned, even with, as you say, there's ways to win in the United States. But again, with a party that is that divided, is he is he not just shooting them in the foot for the next decade? And are are there not other Republicans that are aware that, you know what, this is just 10 years of more hell for us as opposed to, you know, just, you know, uh, cutting bait here and, and, and changing direction. Yeah, they, I mean, you know, they tried that. You, you saw that initially even in, in Trump's candidacy way back in 2015-16. There was an attempt, a number of the candidates who wanted to uh, revert to the more traditional anchors of, of, of the party and who wanted to uh, arrange some kind of uh, or make some kind of uh, U-turn around some of these hot-button issues like immigration and race relations. Um, these weren't the best of candidates. Their ideas, might, those, those sentiments might have been good, but the candidates themselves weren't very strong. I'm thinking, for example, of, of Jeb Bush, for example, who was, a, was performed terribly as, as when running for the nomination of the party but who was clearly in the camp of, listen, we've got to begin to move away from these things. There's a racial reckoning coming. We've got to deal with immigration, not just the tens of millions in the country who aren't documented, but the reality that as an older society, we need to keep bringing in immigrants. And those immigrants always are going to be coming from countries of color. So there were candidates who wanted to go that way. Marco Rubio initially ran, started out as a candidate and he was one of those who was part of, you know, let's make a deal on, on immigration. Let's come to terms with, with America's changing composition. Uh, but those folks uh, found themselves uh, not terribly good candidates and beaten into the bushes by Mr. Trump. And so I'm not sure there's much of an appetite left for anyone to frontally uh, make that challenge. Uh, so do Americans want more Donald Trump? I mean, do they feel he was wronged this time and he's just going to come back bigger and better next time? Is that going to happen? His supporters, I'm certain, feel that. Uh, but even that number of supporters is, 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 is declining. Uh, but do most Americans want it back? No. Over 60% of Americans in a recent opinion surveys indicated that they believed he was guilty and should have been impeached. Uh, so... Uh, this idea that you're going to see, like Phoenix Rising, uh, a, a Donald Trump ascendant in 2024 and capturing a general election is just not going to happen. 
uh, he won't. I, very likely, he won't be the candidate. He won't be. A I candidate. agree, Wayne, and 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 I think by uh, by sitting on the wrong side of history here, I think it's going to damage them for a while. Uh, Wayne Petrosi with us, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration, Ryerson University. Wayne, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, obviously, we know what a uh, tremendous uh, impact uh, the global pandemic has had on air travel and anything to do with hospitality, anything to do with travel uh, and such. We're hearing of, of layoffs on uh, with all the major airlines over the, the last several weeks. Obviously, uh, international flights and sun destinations over March break canceled as well. So uh, what happens uh, when, I guess, you have lemons, you make lemonade? Ottawa gives the green light to Air Canada's uh, $190 million purchase of Air Transat. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. It, uh, bolstered by some nice aerobic snow shoveling. There you go. And it's nice and light, too, which is great. It's not that heavy stuff. So It wasn't oh, until today, and then yeah. la- yesterday when the snow came down, we had blowing snow. And yeah. that drifted snow is actually a little more, it's not heavy, but it's a little more packed. Yeah. You have to break through crusts, which we didn't have to do with the snowfall slightly earlier in the last few days. <laughs> You're a professional when it comes to the snow shoveling, well, yeah. Marvin. You've got this down. It's a scientific you thing for you. You have to have All the right. right track on your iPod and then remember <laughs> to use your knees. That's and, it. You know, and then you're fine. You know, it's all about the music going on in your head, and that 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 helps the task a lot. Uh, a lot, that's for sure. All right, exactly. let's talk about. Uh, there was chatter about Air Canada and Air Transat prior to uh, the global pandemic. I, I believe that's correct. So, it, give us a bit of the history of this story. <laughs> well, there are so many different places to jump in. It's really like a bad soap opera. Uh, let me start this way. Air Canada, of course, our flagship carrier in, in, in Canada, last week announced its full-year results for 2020, and what an awful picture it was. In total, Air Canada lost roughly $4.6 billion, uh, roughly $1.6 just in the last quarter alone. And why? Well, the numbers. Uh, passenger traffic as a whole for Air Canada was down 73% for the year. And remember, the year started off not too badly. January, February, even March wasn't all that badly. But it was the 90% decline in ridership in the last nine months that makes the total down 73%. So with that down, revenues are down. You're absolutely right. There have been layoffs all over the place. And then 2021 dons. And the hope was, well, with vaccines, we'd get the airplanes back up in the sky. But then a new agreement with the Canadian government says we're not going to fly to sun destinations in in Mexico, in the Caribbean, until the end of April. That was agreed to by WestJet, Air Canada, Air Transat, and Sunwing. So, you know, again, a big chunk of change lost for these companies. They rely so much on this. Now, layered against all of this and almost forgotten through all of this, was that uh, in the spring of 2020, when, when things were looking maybe not so bad, or at least maybe we'd have a faster recovery from COVID, Air Canada talked to Air Transat about a takeover deal. And the initial deal actually valued Air Transat at about twice the number you were talking about. It was closer to $400 million. Now, Air Transat is a charter service, meaning that they fly planes north-south during the winter months. They fly them east-west to Europe during the summer months, but they aren't exactly regularly scheduled routes 
the way Air Canada does. Instead, they typically connect their flights to hotel accommodations, and you buy a, a vacation package and take advantage of that. Uh, Air Canada thought this made some sense because, again, they could take some of the planes, and if, if uh, Air Transat had to cancel a route, well, they could use that plane on an Air Canada route. And, you know, it just made some sense from an economy of scale standpoint. Now, when they announced this in the um, late spring of 2020, it instantly became clear that they were going to need two government approvals. They were going to need Canadian government approval because there was a concern about uh, reducing competition. Air Transat is a, uh, it's not a huge player. Obviously, WestJet is bigger, but it's still the third largest uh, air traffic group in Canada. So would the Canadian government approve it? And they also needed European Union approval because the permission to fly to the European Union, you know, you need to get their, their vote for it. Last week, February the 11th, the Canadian government came through and said, yes, you know, we think this makes some sense and they're going to be stronger together. So all is clear for the takeover on February 15th, which was yesterday. But the European Union has not come through yet. Uh, the European Union has suggested they will get to it, but it's not their top priority given COVID, given Brexit, everything else. They're suggesting this could take another month or two. And the deal that was struck said that if they did not have this all put to bed by February 15th, one party or the other could walk away. And so as today has dawned, February 16th, the question is whether Air Canada might choose to walk away. Is this the right time to buy an airline, especially to buy an airline in the case of Air Transit, which is sitting doing absolutely nothing and not generating any revenue at all? And then one more quick thing, to, uh, uh, Scott, on this note. Sitting in the background is a gentleman named Carl Pelido. Mr. Pelido at one time was a member of the Quebec Legislative Assembly, what they call an MNA, and um, a fairly wealthy man himself. When Air Canada announced that they were going to buy Air Transat, he said, well, I, you know, I don't know if that's good for Quebec. I'd like to see more Quebec leadership. So he put forward an offer which the Air Transat board rejected at the time. They said, we'd rather go with the big player in the market who's got the deeper pockets rather than you, Mr. Pelido. Well, you can imagine what's happened in the last couple of days. Mr. Pelido has emerged from the wings and has said, I'm ready again to step forward. If Air Canada wants to drop it, I'm ready to pick it up and put money into it. And so, like a bad soap opera, the story continues. Why uh, Quebec's love affair with Air Transat? Is is this like a Bombardier or yep. uh, uh, you know or uh, SNC Lavalin for them? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is interesting that for the rest of us in Canada, we take great pride in made in Canada ownership. So of course we think locally about Tim Hortons and Stelco and DeFasco, but really we take pride in anything that's Canadian made. In Quebec, they take it and bring the microscope down just a little farther and anything that seems to be based in Quebec, that just is a fixture in their minds. And so they may not, may not be happy with what's happening with the oil sands. They may not be happy, but that's not us. That's Alberta. If it's about Quebec, boy, does it ever get the attention of people. And so Air Transat, based in Montreal, that's where the head office is. And there was an agreement with Air Canada that head office workers would remain. And, in fact, part of the deal with um, 
the Canadian government was that there'd be um, uh, 1,500 Air Transat people guaranteed to keep their jobs, keep the employment. And, of course, again, if, if Air Canada is walking away because maybe now is not the right time to do a consolidation in the airline industry, Mr. Pelido is ready to make those exact same agreements. So this, this story is not done. I, I still think ultimately Air Canada will end up with it. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense on many levels for them to do the merger, but it is a tortuous process at this point. So uh, who is this better for at this point? Is it better? Is it a good time to buy or is it a good time to sell? You know, I, I teach in a business school, and what we try to tell students is when you have these I hate to phrase it quite like this, but these temporary situations, and, and COVID, I know it doesn't feel temporary because it's been going on for a year, but we will get past this. So as you talk about business strategy, you really do have to look 10 years down the road, 15, 20 years down the road, and I think this is a good deal for Air Canada in that kind of a time frame. But at this moment, no one quite knows when we're going to get closer to the old normal, meaning that we can fly again. Um, I, I think I've shared, shared this with you and your listeners before, but I, I've actually got a trip booked in June. I'm supposed to fly internationally to uh, the Baltic nations, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, and I'm going to end with a couple of days in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, and then fly back. I haven't canceled that yet because I'm still hopeful I'll be able to get on a plane and discover the world in June, but I may have to cancel it if we can't get on top of COVID. So in the short term, this doesn't look like a great idea. Buy a company that shut down, can't fly anybody till the end of April. Uh, are you paying too much for this asset? And, and by today's standards, the answer is yes. It's not generating any revenue at all at the moment. But I think you have to take the longer term in mind. And, and I actually think if Air Canada walks away from this deal, they'll be kicking themselves in two or three years and saying, you know, why, why did we do that? Why did we look at the short term rather than the long term? But it is hard in that moment to take that longer term view when short term you look around, everything looks bad. Because you cannot really put a value on Air Transat today, can you? And how do you, how do you, you know, even as you said, I mean, this is all going to end one day and we certainly will be traveling again. Uh, but when is that and to what extent? So how do you put a value? What's the, yeah. what's the sale price on Air Transat pre-COVID and post-COVID? Yeah. So the way, the way I would be doing it if you came to me and I don't, I don't have their balance sheet sitting in front of me at this moment, but I'd be looking at their assets. So the planes that they own, even if they are parked on the ground, have value. And, and chances are buying, shall I call it, good used planes is going to be cheaper for somebody than going to Boeing and buying fresh off the assembly line planes. So there is a valid, uh, there is a value, excuse me, to uh, Air Transat based on the assets. But normally when you go to try to sell something, you want to sell the goodwill associated with the company. So, you know, again, a simple, simple example, Scott, you run a restaurant. Well, I could buy the assets of your restaurant for one price, but you say, hold on a minute, I have a name, you know, Shea Scott, it means certain things. I've got clients who come to me, I need to be paid for that intangible value. And clearly at the moment, there's not a lot of intangible value with Air Transat. Even the brand name, what's a brand name worth for, for an airline that's not flying anybody? But there would be a value. Now, I think, again, Air Canada has not said it's walking away from the deal at this point. 
but it hasn't um, hasn't necessarily agreed, for instance, to extend the terms beyond February 15th, let's say, to April 30th. That would make logical sense to me if I was still interested. They may be saying to themselves, you know, yeah, I might be interested in extending the deal, but I, I might want to renegotiate the price one more time and bring it down. Right now, the deal is valued at a little over $5 a share for Air Transat, which is roughly what it's trading for in the marketplace. Uh, but Air Canada says, you know, the longer this goes on, the less your company is worth. Uh, we even saw this, uh, speaking of, of, uh, of French-based or Quebec-based companies, Bombardier was selling its train division to a company called Alstom. This is the division that makes the cars that you would use in an LRT or in a subway. And they actually had to take less money for that because of the state of the, the world's economy. So, you know, it wouldn't be necessarily wrong for Air Canada to go back to Air Transat and say, I think we're paying a little too much for this. Now that the deal is over, let's renegotiate. And there's where you get Mr. Pelido. If he comes in and says, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm five at $5 a share. Let's go. Harder than for the board to figure out what's the best way to go for the shareholders. What about other airlines? How does this affect the industry if these two merge? Well, I, I think actually it doesn't affect things very much. WestJet, like Air Canada, is primarily a, a, a carrier that has defined routes and segments. In other words, I can get, I know there's going to be a flight from uh, Toronto to Calgary Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They aren't really in the charter business. And Swoop, which is their discount carrier, again, the same kind of a thing. It's not a charter business. Now, apparently in the last few weeks, a, a third party has emerged to buy Sunwing, and a deal has been put forward to buy Sunwing. I was waiting to hear whether that might have been WestJet. That would kind of make sense to me if Air Canada is buying a charter service like Air Transat, that WestJet might emerge to buy Sunwing, although apparently what I'm hearing is that it could be uh, uh, an enhanced deal. Uh, Sunwing just recently announced it had formed a partnership with the Marriott Group, Sunwing flies a lot of Canadians south into the Caribbean, and most of the hotels that it flies them to are Marriott hotels, so they have formed some stronger partnership. Maybe Marriott is interested in backward integrating and buying the airlines to bring the people to their hotels in the Caribbean, so we'll see how it goes. But I don't think it's going to have... I don't really think it's going to have that much impact on the marketplace, even if it does lessen a bit of competition. What about the hotel? You just mentioned the hotel industry. Obviously, that's the other shoe here. Uh, what about that industry? How healthy is it through all of this? Well, it's not. It's not healthy. Uh, uh, it's a bit like restaurants, uh, as what we have discovered is that hotels and restaurants are nice to have industries. And when we've had our lives as normal, a, a chunk of us have disposable income and choose to spend it on those things. We have not been traveling, therefore hotels are not full. Um, I believe there was a story, uh, oh, let's just say about a month ago, that uh, something like uh, $4 billion worth of hotel rooms weren't booked uh, over the normal amount of uh, rooms not booked. So it's been a bad year for hotels. Again, the reason why I'm not crying for them exactly is that the buildings themselves have value, the assets have value. So as long as this remains a short-term problem, they can get back to normal. They'll be able to repay their mortgages again, and, and they'll go back. It's just that at the moment, I can't tell anybody whether you have to hold on for two months or six months or 12 months. And I, I don't mean to throw that out there, 12 months, and scare everybody. But if we are going to get back to normal by the fall... Canada is going to have to be vaccinating people at least at the rate of 100,000 to 200,000 people per day for us to put enough of a dent in the population to achieve herd immunity by September. 
And at this point, when we are struggling to get the vaccines, I'm just not sure that I can even count on us being back to normal by the fall. Yeah, that's interesting. We talk about vaccines being ramped up this week to 400,000 doses, and then that again the following week. That's still only enough for 400,000 people with the two doses in a country of however many million. You think we need, somebody here I think said that we need 10 million uh, Ontarians just to be vaccinated in order to get herd, uh, herd immunity. So uh, yeah, we're still talking dribs and drabs, I guess, at this point. On that note, uh, since you brought it up, your thoughts on... Uh, we've talked before about vaccination production here in Canada. Uh, we couldn't do it, didn't have the capacity, yet we've seen uh, the UK and other countries like that turn it around inside of the inside of a year. We are now down that path with deals with no, uh, Novavax, and and now the Premier of Manitoba has announced uh, a deal with uh, uh, Providence Therapeutics uh, to purchase vaccines. Uh, from them, and we were talking to the CEO there, and apparently they're working on deals with other provinces. So your thoughts on the provinces uh, sort of going it alone and, and trying to do their own deal with Canadian-made solutions? Mm-hmm. And and at the same time, Scott, you didn't mention it specifically, but we actually have two more vaccines uh, that are in production, or not production, in testing by mm-hmm. Canadians, one out of the University of Saskatchewan, and I just forget as I'm talking to you where the other one is coming out of. Um, and one of the advantages that these late-to-the-party vaccines have is that they are being developed at a time that we see these variants. So the first one's out of the mark. That's the Pfizer vaccine. That's the Moderna vaccine. We know they worked well on the original core coronavirus, COVID-19, but we're not quite so sure how they work on the variants. So people joining the party now get to try their vaccine against not only the main disease, but all the variants. And it may be that in the long term, these later to the party vaccines will be better. I think what we're going to do, and I can't again tell you the month it's going to be, we're going to go from a famine to a feast. Um, it, It is my belief that at some point this year, you're going to be able to go to your drugstore and have a choice of a a menu of maybe seven options or eight options or nine options. You know, I'll take one of those and one of those and a little whipped cream on the side, (laughs) which seems unbelievable at the moment. But I believe at some point we're going to go from famine to feast and you can get a one-shot vaccine, a two-shot vaccine. You can get a Canadian vaccine. You can get something else. Um, and if not by late summer, certainly by Christmas time, that will happen. But then what I worry about is what will the demand be like? And we might go to a point where we eventually have vaccine kind of lying around. And that's also why Mr. Trudeau has promised that whenever we get sort of the, the critical number of Canadians vaccinated, we'll take leftover vaccine and donate it to the developing world to help them. But we're not doing give it back to Co- we'll give it we'll give it back to COVAX. <laughs> yeah, we, right. We'll give it back then, but we'll do it then. We're not doing it now because we need yeah. every drop we can get here. And that's, again, what the world is challenged to do. We we aren't blind to helping developing nations, but you know, it's, it's what they say on the airplane, you know, when the masks drop down, put your mask yeah. on first and get your oxygen flowing before you help the person beside you. We need to get this thing under control here, and then we'll put extra resources to other people. So I, I think this is all good. I don't think this is bad. I think the more vaccines being developed, the more testing, the more we'll be ready for variants. It's possible maybe we'll discover halfway through the year that Pfizer doesn't work with the variants, and so stop Stop injecting Pfizer and go with the Novavax because it's better, more broad-based coverage. So the more science is working at it, I think the better it is. It's just that if you're stuck at home and you're looking for a way to get out of home and get back to normal, 
you're still months away from that. Yeah, but let's be honest too, Marvin. All of these, the Pfizer and the Moderna, they're already working on their next generation of vaccine, uh, which will include just like a, a various flu shot does the strain for next year. So yeah. I'm not sure Canadians are waiting for the, you know, to time their strains or their variants rather than getting it now, because if we would have had a uh, vaccine earlier and, and everybody would get vaccinated, then we wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't have variants. Uh, experts have said to me, the longer we wait for vaccinations, the more of a chance that there is a variant. Whereas if you nip right. it in the bud, uh, you stop the variants. But anyway, it's going to be fascinating to watch Marvin. Marvin Ryder, uh, professor of, uh, business with the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Will do. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.